will be reading from Mark 10, 32 through 45, on page 938. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days he will arise. He will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want to do we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one on your left hand, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink, and with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant. But it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the word of the Lord. But again, I should say a happy Advent to you all. Um, if you are not familiar with what the season of Advent is, it's a four-week span between uh, right before Christmas uh, that um, often happens the Sunday after Thanksgiving, reminds us of uh, our longing for Christ even now. It's what it means. Advent means coming or arrival. Reminds us of the coming of Christ, not just his first coming in a manger in Bethlehem, a a little babe who was born to die, um, but uh, his second coming as conquering king, which Christians even now wait for. So it's a season in which we practice our waiting, practice our longing. We're doing an Advent calendar with our kids uh, where we each night look at a different um, ornament that points to who Jesus is and what they, were, uh, what they were looking forward to in him. And I have to tell you, there's 25 of those ornaments, and my kids notice every single one of them. They almost groan every night. Is it really that many days still till Christmas? But it's good for them to feel that, and we should feel it too. And so nonetheless, we're in Mark chapter 10. 
Um, and as I've mentioned before, this book, what we're encountering in this book is not just a biography or a history book. This book is aiming to change us. It's aiming to impress us and it's aiming to change more than just our opinions about Jesus. It's aiming to change what we understand it means to follow Jesus. In fact, you could say that Mark's gospel is just as much about what it means to follow Jesus as it is about Jesus himself, what it means to identify with Jesus as it is about his person and work. And as we saw last week, not only did Jesus not leave us to define Christianity on our own terms, sometimes he is so straightforward about what he asks, what it means to follow him, and what it will mean about what it'll mean for our marriages, for our divorces, what it'll mean for our sex lives, about how we treat the littlest among us, what it will mean for our money. And that's just the last chapter that some people said and still do today when they hear these demands, no thanks. I'm sorry, I'm out of here. In fact, you have to wonder why the 12 disciples, Jesus' chosen 12, stayed with him after all of the costs and persecutions and sacrifices that he promised would come along the way. You could, and I even think should say, there are many noble reasons why these disciples followed him. After all, they are really convinced that Jesus is the Messiah, the coming king, uh, the coming rescuer king of Israel. Um, They've Put, uh, again, they've made that public, uh, Peter specifically, when no one else did. And they have seen firsthand what he is capable of. They are the first eyewitness, the, uh, yeah, the, the eyewitnesses of his miracles. And yet here, I think, even for all the noble reasons, I think we find one of the uglier ones. And not for the first time. You see, here, I think we find out that the disciples, in some ways, stuck with Jesus because they see in Jesus a path to power. And even as it is easy to roll your eyes at James and John, and trust me, you will once you look more at what they've asked, I have to tell you, I don't think you and I are all that different. I think we have some of the same longings as the disciples do. And I think some of us, I think we see in Jesus even, a path to our own ambitions, a path to power, even as the disciples did. And it may be that all of us then need to hear what Jesus has to say, not just about the upside-down values of his kingdom, not just of how greatness is defined there, but of how our king has used his power to serve us. Today, I want to contrast two different kingdoms, as we often do, the kingdom of humanity, the kingdom of man, and the kingdom of God, and how power is conceived of both, in both. And then finally, I want to look at a model for power that Jesus offers, and I hope you will again keep your Bibles open as we consider each of these in turn. But let's start with the first. Let's start with how power is conceived in the kingdom of man. Now, as I mentioned last week, again, And I just mentioned prior to the service, we are in the season of Advent, a season, the four weeks leading up to Christmas. And for some of us, this is your favorite time of year. I mean, raise your hand again if you just live for Christmas. You love Christmas. I heard somebody say on their way in, uh, Miss Junior, I think you said, we should celebrate Christmas all year round, right? So the, uh, 
Uh, some of us feel like that. Some of us uh, love Christmas time, but still for others of us, because Christmas is full of family, it may also be full of conflict. It might be full of arguments. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand for that one, and don't elbow anybody who is sitting next to you. But it's like the old arguments are dusted off like the family heirloom every, uh, for round number 15. I mean, don't, again, this is this time of year, it's, it's as if for some of us that conflict is the tradition of choice. And con- the conflict here, which we see, is a doozy. I want you to picture it with me. I mean, Jesus is, is now walking um, on his final journey to Jerusalem, walking along a dusty road with his disciples, walking to Jerusalem. You can perhaps see the city still just now coming into view. And Jesus pulls aside the twelve. And says to them in verse 33, See where we are going to Jerusalem. We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered up over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days he will rise. Now, who is he referring to in all of this? He's, of course, referring to himself. It should be a somber moment. After all, Jesus has, for the third time in Mark's gospel and what we have recorded in the scriptures, spoken openly that things are about to turn very dark, not just for him, but for them. And he is getting more and more specific about what it's going to look like. This wasn't just despairing pessimism or another confusing parable. It's as if Jesus is speaking that his life has to end on a Roman cross, that his life is for one purpose. Uh, It is meant to end in a death of shame, of spit, of blood, uniting both Jew and Gentile in its hostility in which they will band together calling him their enemy. Now Mark doesn't tell us how much time passes between these comments, which should be, again, a sobering moment, one that likely confused the disciples. It doesn't tell us how much time passed between those comments and the next ones, but I have, based on the passage and other accounts, it seems they're said in pretty close proximity, which is very confusing if you see what happens next. You see, uh, two disciples come to him with a particular request, a particularly uh, forward, you could say even inappropriate request. Uh, and these two disciples aren't just any two disciples, though. These are James and John. Jesus calls these brothers the Boanerges. The Boanerges, which is often translated the Sons of Thunder. I mean, doesn't that sound like a WWE wrestling name? Welcome the Sons of Thunder. I mean, this is just real. It's really funny, though, when you see them in, the, in Jesus' life, that they really do earn this nickname. Uh, for instance, uh, at one point in their ministry, they get uh, very upset at the Samaritans, and they say to Jesus, Hey, Jesus, should we call fire down on them like Sodom and Gomorrah? Whoa, hold on there. These guys, nonetheless, are known to be hot-tempered, and so the Boanerges, which, again, means sons of thunder, could also be translated, perhaps, the loud ones or the hotheads. Imagine Jesus referring to you by that nickname. And I think we could say, again, this nickname fits, especially in what we see next. The brothers, again, James and John, make up, of, make up two of Jesus's inner three, though. Three disciples 
that among the twelve, Jesus spent the most time with, and he revealed himself to them the most plainly. In fact, together with Peter, they are the only witnesses of Jesus' transfiguration, where Jesus peels back his glory and shows what it means that he is indeed not just fully man, but fully God. And perhaps that's why they feel the nerve to come forward with the request that they do. Actually, Matthew, who writes of this event as well, tells us that this request came from their mom. You can just picture saying, oh boys, if you won't ask him, I'll do it for you. I mean, anybody have like a mom like that? Who's not going to allow you again? They're going to they're step forward, defend you, but comes forward to Jesus with this request. Again, probably sick of her sons arguing. I don't want to be seen as arrogant, James. And nonetheless, the request doesn't really come from the mom. It comes from the two men, which is why it's in the center here. It comes from the bros who basically ask Jesus up front in verse 35, prepping for their real request. Uh, Jesus, uh, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Notice there's no real like question in there. Jesus, we'd like you to write us a blank check. As if that doesn't set off any warning lights from the beginning. And Jesus wisely doesn't quite sign on. He asks, in a sense, oh yeah, what's that? Verse 37, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Or as Matthew puts it, in your kingdom. Now it may not be immediately apparent to us. But this request isn't quite literal, looking for a seating place like at a meal. It's not just a request for greatness, but authority. It's a request for power, beside the one that they are convinced will soon be announced as the king of Israel. In other words, they want to be his major generals. They suspect as soon as they get into Jerusalem, things are about to get chaotic. Jesus' kingdom is about to get started. And in the mess, they don't want to leave anything up to chance. They need to call shotgun. And it's not too difficult to guess why. You see, just in these last few chapters, we have seen the rest of the disciples with egg on their face. Very, very embarrassed. After all, in chapter 9, we find out that the disciples had just proven their inability to heal in public. It was a very shameful event in which Jesus again remarks on the faithlessness of his own disciples. And yet Mark tells us, you know, who wasn't a part of that is James, John, and the apostle Peter. I'm sure they reminded the apostles of that afterwards, the disciples, and saying, well, if only we had been there, things would have looked differently. But then you have right before that, not just the, the other disciples put to shame, but Peter himself, as Peter himself goes public with Jesus. You are the Christ, the son of the living God, only then to rebuke Jesus for his, a similar prophecy about the crucifixion. They know better than to do that this time because what happened then? But Peter was called Satan himself. Get behind me, Satan. James and John, in other words, or perhaps wondering them to themselves, having little side conversations. Well, bro, I guess that leaves us. And as much as it surprises us, in their minds, the request may not have seemed to them all that selfish. In fact, it very well could have been that they heard all that Jesus said he was about to suffer. 
Only what they heard and interpreted was likely Jesus fearing fierce battles in Jerusalem. Their chief was shaking in his boots, nervous about their chances. To quote the musical Hamilton, they would be outgunned, outmanned, outnumbered, outplanned. They got to make an all-out stand, and Jesus, he's going to need a right-hand man. It's a good thing I didn't try and wrap that. But nonetheless, it may be that they thought Jesus needed some major generals who were at his side, who had his back no matter what came. They would be public for him. It seemed, again, everyone else had been disqualified, and so the request may not have struck them as arrogant but practical. After all, they didn't have a lot of time before they came through the gates of the city itself. Now was a time to clear up these questions. And maybe, again, they, uh, that they thought that Jesus didn't want to be seen picking favorites, and so they'd take the pressure off of him for once, and they'd take one for the team. After all, who would be better to have as your major generals than the sons of thunder themselves? They'd even let him pick who was on the right hand and the left. It didn't matter to them. But Mark tells us that the other, the other ten, when they heard it, became indignant. No, duh. I think you could say so. Yet it's probably not the forwardness or the arrogance of their request, but perhaps that the other ten didn't think of it first themselves. All of them, you see, had been jockeying for who could be closest to Jesus, who deserved to be his most trusted follower. In chapter 9, we find out, we found out, I believe this is the text that you preached, Peter, that they were arguing over who is the greatest among them. Was that the what well, you did? Larry, I'm sorry, I didn't give you credit. Larry, you preached that very excellently. I'm sorry that my memory is poor. In chapter 9, again, we find out that this wasn't their first fight about who was the greatest. They all wanted what James and John asked for, but now the brothers, again, had called shotgun before any of them had gotten the chance. The rivalry, you see, had been there for a while among them, but now it went public for the first time. Perhaps, though, we can empathize, though, more than we perhaps realize. You see, I think we share much in common with the disciples, not just with their public rivalry, but with the beliefs behind it. In fact, I think when it comes to the kingdom of self, the kingdom of man, when it comes to its view of power, I think there are three beliefs that are at work that just seem to be common sense. The first is that I lack greatness and I need it. I lack greatness and I need it. You see, I don't think it's just that the disciples wanted greatness and power. I think greatness and even power is something we all long for, even if you don't have a strong desire to be in charge. You see, we want to hold our destiny, our significance, our happiness, our lives in our hands, don't we? We don't want them to be in the hands of someone else, someone who could not be trusted. We want to be able to steer our own future. We want to be able to make something of our lives that someone would say is worthwhile. That proves that we really are something. To prove that we've earned our stay. To prove that we aren't forgettable. In fact, let me ask you, are there still some ghosts that haunt you today? Now, 
I don't mean that literally, okay? If, there's, if you are convinced ghosts are haunting you, we should talk. But nonetheless, what I mean is those voices and people who are in the back of your mind, who you're tr- still trying to please, still trying to hear good job from, to know that you matter to. So often, this is what we, a longing for greatness looks like, at least in the kingdom of self. But it's not just that we all want greatness, significance, influence we believe two other things about greatness and these go hand in hand second greatness is out there and must be fought for greatness is out there and it must be fought for now because i'm a dad you'll have to excuse me but a lot of my illustrations come from kids movies but there's one kids movie um, that i think of recently when it comes to this point came from the movie The Princess and the Frog, which is older now, uh, animated movie. Um, I remember, and here's the, how the song, and I'm not going to sing it for you, just as I wasn't going to rap Hamilton. I remember, <clears throat> I remember Daddy told me, miracles, or sorry, fairy tales can come true, but you got to make them happen. It all depends on you. I think this describes how many of us live our lives. We have even spiritual ways, or seemingly spiritual ways of saying it. God helps those who help themselves, which is not a verse that you will find in the Bible. We live in a time where there is this intense pressure, again, to make something of our lives, in which it's said that if you are going to follow anything, it must be your own heart. And if you do not find your happiness, the implication is, in some ways, it is your fault, or the fault of those who stand in your way. It is the pressure, the pressure on our shoulders is to, again, seize our happiness and to seize our moment, most importantly, when it comes. And this would be the moment the disciples had waited for, the moment where they had to press themselves forward, the moment they had to seize. Others, again, might surely hold us back, but if we don't make something of our lives, it is assumed no one will. In fact, we may see greatness as our right Not just something that we must seize, but something we deserve to seize. Thinking to ourselves, I mean, don't I have a right to be heard? A right to have a predictable and comfortable life? Haven't I worked for that? Don't I have a right to finally call the shots for once in my own life? Don't I deserve that much? And almost without realizing it, we scope out opportunities in relationships to get ahead. To climb a ladder that is only visible to us. To determine our relationships in many ways by what advantage they give us. And sadly, for some, this is exactly what they see in Jesus. Not to get too personal, but I once had a professor begin Um, my very first class on pastoral ministry, pastoral theology, when I first was kicking the tires of whether I wanted to be a shepherd. I remember him beginning that class, looking very seriously at all those who were gathered in the room and saying, young men, all of you, at least in some measure, want to be a pastor for the wrong reasons. And the more I have been a pastor, I have to tell you, I can see how right he was. How right Peter, in his letter 
was to warn against pastoring for selfish gain. Even pastors, you see, including myself and our other elders here, in our own sin can look to a position to soothe our insecurities or to prove our worth. But it doesn't just take a pastor to do this, does it? Some are honestly drawn to the church, at least in some measure, because they want to see, because they see in the church a place to throw their weight around, to be in, a, in the room where decisions are made. They see in the church an opportunity for influence, for reputation, for gain. We see this in the book of Acts with Ananias and Sapphira. Some seek to make the church a plaything, in other words, of selfish ambition. The kingdom of self believes power is something not only that must be sought, but fought for. And it believes, this is the third, I must fight against you. Not only I must fight for greatness, but I must fight even against you. After all, have you ever found yourself the collateral damage of someone else trying to get ahead? It could be a boss, a peer, maybe even a family member. But if it's up to me to make my dreams come true, so often what stands in the way of that happiness, that greatness after all, is other people. Like starving dogs fighting over the scraps, many act as if greatness were in short supply and if necessary, it must be wrestled from the jaws of someone else. The world, as is often put, and I appreciate this phrase, is red in tooth and claw. It's bloody. Red in tooth and claw, a brutal game. We must all play, and that often is at the, at the expense of others. It's not just that survival of the fittest is a, is a, is a uh, again, an idea in our textbooks but so often the rules of our very relationships. Of course, this tussle over power can be seen at a large scale every time an election cycle comes around, or as nations posture themselves against nations, even now around the world, trying to prove, again, who's the biggest bully in the schoolyard. But often, I think we could say people, can be just as ruthless in daily relationships. I don't think it takes too much imagination to see how this mentality of I must fight for greatness, I must fight for power even against you, I don't think it takes too much imagination to see how that seeps into the workplace, into the classroom, into the boardroom, into your friendships, maybe even to your marriage where even our closest relationships decay into a power play, fighting over what we think are the few scraps left under the table. And don't believe me? Let me ask you, how do you respond when someone else gets the attention and keeps getting the attention? What happens when you aren't the one who is noticed? appreciated or admired and you feel like you're owed it do you ever fight in your relationships over whose turn it is or whose right it is 
I'm sure I'm not the only spouse who has ever argued over who deserves a break more. How many of our fights could be boiled down to who gets to win? Again, it grieves me to say this belief so often infiltrates the church as well. Turning what God calls the dwelling place for his spirit into a battleground for, pre- for preference and power. Fighting over who gets the attention, over who gets their way. We must never forget, no church ever drifts, towards, drifts toward unity. They drift towards the opposite. No church, again, drifts towards compassion and kindness and empathy. They drift towards the opposite. Apart from the gospel, even the community of believers will drift toward being red in tooth and claw. And some of us have not only seen it firsthand, but if we're honest, done some of the rending ourselves. In the kingdom of self, we not only long for power, we believe it must be fought for, seized by whatever means necessary, often at the expense of others. But then notice what Jesus has to say about his kingdom and how upside down it is. Let's look at power in the kingdom of God. Now, God's word, the more that you come to understand God's word, yes, there's certainly many things, especially if you're new to it, that are going to be confusing, that are going to take work. Keep at it. But the more that you begin to understand it, the more it's going to awaken your emotions and your responses. And sometimes you're going to be left shaking your head or rolling your eyes, which I think we see here. You can almost see Jesus doing this. You can almost expect him to respond this way, shaking his head, saying, you have got to be kidding me. After all, I think Uh, That's probably how I would have responded. But I have to tell you, I find that Jesus' response is so much better than mine would be. So remarkable, both for its patience and its empathy. It's as if Jesus says, I get it. This is all you have ever seen. After all, this is how every great one around you has treated others, has used their power And you're just playing by their rules. You're just playing by what you have seen. But that's not how things work in my kingdom. In fact, verse 43, I want you to look at it, where he says, It shall not be so among you. Do you know that, um, as in, uh, you really shouldn't be acting like this, as in stop it, try harder, do better, it actually may be more appropriately translated not you shall not it shall not be so among you but it is not so among you now some of you might roll, uh, raise your eyebrows at that saying well it clearly is i mean obviously you're treating this, this them this way but here's here's what i mean is that meaning it, this means that this kind of behavior what jesus is saying has no place in his kingdom any longer just like a parent who says to their child we don't act that way in our family we don't treat one another that way As if Jesus is saying, that has no place in the kingdom that you are now a part of. Why? Jesus seems to think that greatness is found a very different way. And it's interesting here, before we get into this, I want you to notice he doesn't say abandon the search for greatness. Notice he plays on this desire as if it comes from God. This desire for significance. What does he say? If you would be great, what is he assuming? Not that we would abandon it entirely, but there's a different and even more satisfying path to find significance. 
to find in God what we are seeking many other places, often in our own hands. But first, truth number one, greatness is found in giving it up. Notice what Jesus has to say to the bros in verse 38. You do not know what you're asking. I mean, don't you love how straightforward Jesus is? Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Both of these things, particularly the last one, again, the cup and the baptism, the last one particularly, it's a bit cryptic, but both taken together seem to refer in a poetic way to what Jesus had just spoken of in verse 32 through verse 34 when he speaks of his own suffering and death, a suffering which he will drink down as a cup, a cup of judgment. That image is all over the Old Testament, passed to him, undeserved, from his own father. And a suffering, a second image, of which he must be baptized into or plunged into like a flood. Neither of these, the baptism or the cup would come to him because he deserved it, but rather on behalf of the human sinners who did. In other words, Jesus asks them, did you not hear what I just said? Don't don't you know how my kingdom will come? Not by me seizing greatness, but by giving it up in the world's eyes, by me surrendering myself to fists, to whips, to spit, and to nails, by me being made low in the eyes of everyone, not great. Are you able to go that way, is what he says? In other words, following in his way, as Jesus has warned consistently throughout his ministry, will come through a series, a variety of losses. Many of them daily, and some of them will feel very, very much like death. Following in his way, in many ways, requires us to give up not only our definitions of greatness and power, but our desperate attempts to try and gain it on our own. We see this in even, even in Jesus' response. To sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant. This might confuse some of us. Isn't he God? But yes, notice in here, even as fully God, deserving of worship and all the privileges that come with being God, in contrast to his scheming disciples, here is one who submits to his Father, who doesn't demand his rights and privileges, but trusts his Father to make that call. Here is one who submits, and even more importantly, here is one who serves which of course is the main point in what Jesus has to say. Not just that greatness is found in giving it up, but in giving it up for someone else, which is the second point. Greatness is found in giving it up for another. I have to tell you, what Jesus says here, again, about being a servant in these verses, even as he puts it, a slave, that is what the word is, that would have been perhaps even less popular in his day than it would be in ours. You see, in the first century world, just like our culture, it admired self-confidence. It admired those who were strong and asserted themselves. It did not admire the humble, the meek, or the mild. It admired those who had made it and were able to maintain self-respect, often ruthlessly. 
Most people, again, did not admire servanthood. The word here literally of servant refers to a table servant, one who served tables. There was one, there was hardly a less desirable or more lowly position to have. In the first century, servanthood would be something you despised, you mocked as servile and pitiable. But then Jesus intensifies it. He does it, he goes beyond simply being a table servant, and he says, you don't just need to be a servant, you need to be a slave. Now, we need to be very careful when we use this term, not to import all of our associations about slavery into that term. After all, this is not the same race-based chattel slavery that is such a stain on our nation's history, a reprehensible evil we will probably be feeling the effects of for generations to come. The assumptions, though, behind this slavery, even as different as it is, were perhaps equally, as equally repre- reprehensible. They're as equally despicable. Let me give you some examples. After all, Aristotle argued that slaves were like animals, fit only for physical labor, having an incomplete soul and a simple brain. Think about that next time you quote Aristotle in a paper. And Plato argued it was right and good for slaves to be ruled over by their, quote, betters. Jesus has the gall to speak of servanthood, even of slavery, something that was mocked and pitiable, something no one wished and sought to, and everyone sought to escape as desirable. Now, not physical slavery, not in meaning, in, in meaning to justify the institution of slavery. Again, we don't have time to go into deep detail into the differences, but here he's speaking of a different kind, a slavery of a different kind, a spiritual one. Jesus argues that in his kingdom, you see, significance would not crown the powerful, but crown the servant's head. Not the self-aggrandizing, but the humble. It would come not by self-assertion or fighting to the top of the heap. In fact, it would come to those at the bottom. The greatest will become the least. The strongest will make themselves weak for others. The first will make themselves the last. In other words, true leaders, those who's, who, do, who will be entrusted power and use it rightly, will make themselves servants. And this, I think, ends up being extraordinarily important and something we have not quite so clearly seen yet. You see, it shouldn't surprise us that Jesus tells his disciples that following him will involve suffering. He's very public and very consistent about the costs that come with discipleship. But here, he gives those costs a purpose, a grand purpose, a reason why so many times we will lose, specifically so that another will win, so that another might gain. In fact, we see this in the person and work of Christ. Let me give an example. I I remember, um, well, so let me say this first. I want to comment a little bit on how backwards of a idea this is, how much this doesn't just um, uh, reverse our notions of greatness and position, but how it even, and I need to say this particularly for, th- for those of us who talk about freedom all the time, our very understanding of freedom itself. 
remember uh, being so excited when I was a teenager to get my driver's license. Do you, still, do you remember that day when you got yours? I looked forward to it for years, and then I got it, and I came to discover uh, within a few weeks, um, it came with a whole new set of obligations. Not just that I had to pay a gas bill now, but that my parents expected me to start helping with errands and to start giving my siblings a ride. You know, the same things that they did daily for me. But nonetheless, I remember thinking to myself, but that's not why you get a car. That's, that's not what I signed up for. It didn't feel fair. It didn't feel like freedom. It felt more like Ben Parker telling Spider-Man, with great power comes great responsibility, son. I fear some of us approach Christianity and Christian freedom the same way. We are surprised by Christ's expectations because depending on how the gospel was preached to us, it was supposed to be all about freedom, which we understood to be a freedom not just from guilt but from external expectations, maybe even a freedom to do what I wanted, knowing I had the grace of God now. But the Bible's notion of freedom is much, much different. You see, even as the freedom it describes is a freedom from something, namely the freedom, freedom from the power of sin and guilt and the shame it brought with it. It is a freedom for something else. Not to do life as I see fit, but a freedom, ironically, to serve. I think in many ways, we want those in power who use their service this way, don't we? We want those in power over us to see themselves as as servants. After all, have you ever been under a boss or a coach or a teacher that truly served those under their authority? They're a privilege to work for, aren't they? Those who want your good and you saw them sacrifice maybe even their own reputation for you. Some of you are like, that is not how my workplace looks. Because see, some of us, We've been under the opposite, an authority who use their position often as a means of justifying what they feel like they, justify taking what they think they were owed. They see their position, again, as an opportunity to climb this invisible ladder, maybe to step on you as one of its rungs. And you've seen how they come after those who threaten their reputation or power. So often we see opposite than servants who hold the power, right? But we aren't the only, we don't just experience this, some of us dish this out. Let me give an example too. The Bible, again, speaks of this when it comes to a marriage. And again, I realize not many are married in this room. Um, so many are single in this room or widowed or divorced. Uh, but I want to, but it's interesting. In the Bible, it reverses an expectation of what takes place in a home. The Bible is clear. Husbands and wives are created equal before God, with equal with dignity and significance, but they submit voluntarily to different roles. And one of those roles would include a husband bearing a particular sense of responsibility in the home. Spiritual leadership, many have called. But some have so spoken of this leadership in very ungodly ways. They've seen it as a husband's right to sit in front of the sports game and get some nachos, to demand a beer, because after all, he's the head. I encourage you to look at Ephesians 5 and notice how Paul himself reverses these things. How will that husband lead? By being the chief servant. 
That is the picture we see over and over again. It's the kind of leaders we want, and it's not often the kind of leaders we are. Why is it that we seem not to be able to escape our own power games? To take even wonderful, beautiful relationships and make them about our own reputation, our own rights, our own privileges, to do so even in the church. Dietrich Bonhoeffer once said, the church does not need brilliant personalities, but faithful servants of Jesus and the brethren. Let me ask you, where do you usually look for greatness? When sin is warring for your own soul, or do you try to find your significance? What are the things you fight red in tooth and claw for? Have you spent your life resenting those who have more power than you? Or perhaps turning a blind eye to those who have been affected by your own use of strength? Are there those, like the disciples, you have been in rivalry with, and they may never even know it? In private or in public, you have resented them, they have the life you wish you had, and you wish them only ill. Are those even now you know you need to go and repent with? Are you searching, are you seeking to serve or to be served? It's as if we can't, again, escape our own power games, and it seems Jesus knows it. Which is why we must turn to the best verse in this passage, verse 45, and one of the most important verses in all of the Bible. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. I want to look at how power relates to the gospel itself. Now, I want to look again at this verse in just a second, but I want you actually to start by looking up a few verses to verse 41, if you would. I want you to notice how James and John responded to Jesus' question about the cup and baptism. Did you notice this? As if their initial question wasn't arrogant enough. They say then, in response to Jesus' question, can you follow me on this path? And what do they say? We are able! You know, again, it would be funny if it wasn't so sad But, to give them some credit, they may have actually understood Jesus. They may, at least in a limited sense, be willing to endure the cost. At least, they may believe that they are willing to endure. But as Jesus knows, at this point, they would be doing so for the wrong reasons. They would be doing so because they see even suffering as a means to securing their own power and greatness on their own terms. The thing is, as Jesus points out, even as they say they're willing to endure the cost, one day they will, and they will follow him willingly in that way, selflessly in that way, with the same humility that Christ himself had. James, as one of, of Christianity's first martyrs, and John as an exile in the mines of Patmos, according to church history, And at that point, they would do so again willingly, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for the sake of not their own name, but his. What happened? What happened to make those kind of men into these kind of men that made them so willing to lay it down? Those who are trying to jockey for power in front of the other disciples, now laying their own lives aside 
It turns out the very thing that they had been ignoring in what Jesus had said, and the thing that would soon come to pass as he promised, the death of their king, the thing they never imagined happening. That is what would change them. After all, it is what Jesus would do meant not just the end of his life, but it would mean the end of their ambitions, their greatest despair, the bottom falling out, all of their self-conceived plans to becoming, again, the major generals by his side to finally find greatness and significance, to finally know they matter more than others, all of that would end overnight. And where did that leave them? No longer to seek their greatness in a thousand different places, but upon Jesus' resurrection to only identify themselves, not as the great ones, but as the ransomed ones. You see, this idea of a ransom has to do with a bill being paid on behalf of a prisoner of war, or more often, or more significantly, on behalf of a slave. It was a slave price. But the cost isn't so much what's in view here, but the freedom that it gained them. You see, Jesus is saying, this is, about, this is what I'm about to do for you. I'm about to serve you by ransoming you. In other words, I'm not just calling you to serve. You have no idea. I'm not just calling you to lay your life down for others. I am about to do it first. And I am about to do it for your sake. And I am about to do it in an ultimate way, a way you could never even imagine or seek to emulate. I am going to do it on your behalf, the Son of Man, deserving of all the privileges and rights and power in the universe. The one, above all, who deserved to be served came for a different purpose, to serve you. Paul seems to be drawing from this directly when he says in Philippians 2, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of what? A servant. Being born in the likeness of men. That enough would be its... Uh, um, enough this time of year we're reminded of the incarnation of Jesus where God became the God man fully God fully man and the person of Jesus Christ that enough would be serving us God coming near us but that's it but for God to truly come to us he had to serve in an even more ultimate way and that's where it goes on by taking the form of servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form he humbled himself even further did you hear that by becoming obedient Again, submitting to his Father's will to the point of death. Even death on a cross. You want to see how much you have been served by the the God of heaven. How well you are loved by the God of heaven. See all he has surrendered for your sake as an enemy, as a one who is trying to find your greatness in all the other places. Gives up his own greatness, the recognition, uh, the, the voluntary recognition that he had the privileges of God himself. Gives him up as a servant. And who does he serve? He serves you. Friends, in other words, what you see in the cross is the most humble act in human history, the greatest act of servanthood in the Bible, where God, through Jesus, serves those he loves. And this is why Paul and Jesus expect that when we see ourselves through the gospel's eyes, when we see ourselves as having been served, we will never see ourselves as anything other than servants again. 
In fact, the Bible moving forward will in some ways use the term servant as a synonym for a Christian. Christians are a family of fellow servants who, as Philippians 2 puts it, do nothing out of selfish ambition or empty pride. Isn't that convicting? But considering others to be more important than yourselves. This isn't giving you permission for some form of self-hatred. This is saying all the attention that we normally give ourselves, sometimes in pride and sometimes in self-pity, all that that attention, use that as your barometer. That's your standard. Think of others even more than you think of yourselves. In other words, the only reason we can lay down our rights, our privileges, our attempts at greatness and power aside, the only reason we can serve others without expectation of return, the only reason we would, even when we have power, not use it for selfish gain is because we have been served that way. And those who have been served will be eager to do the same. Notice the wonderful cycle here. Jesus serves us in order to free us, in order that we might serve others, that we might see their own freedom. Isn't it wonderful how this goes on and on? Now, does this make us doormats? Does this make us easily bullied? Does this make us passive towards injustice or somehow cold in our ambitions, not desiring for the Lord to do mighty things? Hardly. Following Jesus will often feel like a fight, but it changes what we are fighting for. Following Jesus, again, means fighting no longer for our pride and self-concern. We do not have to win or be seen to be right. We need to fight instead for something better, for the good of others and for the glory of our servant king, the only one, let's remind ourselves, who really deserves to be made a big deal, who, the only one who deserves to be great, who somehow in his magnificent kindness has shared a kind of greatness with us. Let me ask you, what kind of servant might you be to others in your life that God's, why, how is God calling you to be a servant to those in your life right now in a way that you would demonstrate this kind of Christ-like love? In many ways, you could define love this way as self-sacrificial concern. The same sac- self-sacrificial concern that Christ demonstrated for another's true good. It means pursuing that good. Seeing it as just as important as your good. Seeing that your good is in greatness, that, that question, your significance, is already in God's hands that you are not that big of a deal, Christ is, and now you can take the good of another as your chief concern. Think about how well we have been loved. How, have you been, how you have been served by the almighty God of the universe. Who can give up as much as he has? What rights did Jesus not lay aside? What privileges did he demand? What have I gained through him? And whose name could be greater than his? As Philippians 2 ends, therefore God has exalted him, highly exalted him, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. 
Father, we need your help to become these kind of humble, self-serving, I mean, not self-serving, but other-serving people. We cannot do so apart from the gospel of Christ to put the cross of Christ forefront in our imaginations, knowing how well we have been served by the almighty God who came not to be served, but to serve, even by giving his life as a ransom for many. And give us the wisdom and courage now to live as servants of one another here, of non-believers who desperately need to see the love of Christ in action, to no longer live our lives as if we were trying to squeeze out a bit more comfort, a bit more significance, a bit no more power and security for ourselves, but knowing that in Christ we have already gained all things, so what could we really lose? After all, what, he, what did he deny from us? As you remind us in Romans 8, for he who did not spare his own son, but graciously gave, us, gave him up for us all, how will you not also with him give us all things? And it's for his sake we pray. Amen.